So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to be wrapping up one series, the series on stock, and then next week as we go uh, into the month of February, we're going to go into the month with a brand new series. It's not intentionally uh, connected necessarily to the series that we're wrapping up today, but it's actually going to be something that we can build on from this point as we more and more explore you know, God's purpose and destiny, what does God want for our lives? And so I hope that you'll be back here for that. Now, we've been talking about stuck in this series, and I've really been eager to get to this message today because it's a fourth step, and it's a critically important step, and we need to talk about it. In fact, this series would be incomplete if we did not talk about and deal with what we're going to do here in the next few moments. You know, being stuck is not a, not a very good thing. It's not pleasant at all. It's frustrating to say the least. And all of us know what it's like. You know, friend, it doesn't matter how much you love God, uh, how often you come to church, read your Bible, pray. That does not make you or me immune to being stuck. It's going to happen. It's not if, it's when. And then once we're there, what are we going to do to get out? And that's what we've been seeking to do in this series to say, well, next time that we're there, I'd love to think that I could go the rest of my life and never feel stuck again. But I've been there and I'll be there again. But the thing for us is not will it happen, but do I have the tools in my hands and with God's help to be able to get unstuck? And that's such an important thing for us to do. And we've been talking about it. I remember telling you in the very first week when we started the series about the time we got stuck in a road, on a sandy road, dirt road, but it was sand, really. It's like driving on the beach. And how that we got stuck twice on that. That wasn't fun. That wasn't pleasant. You know, the guy who came back a second time to help us, he wasn't very excited about it, to say the least. But that is mild in comparison with uh, uh, another family. You know, this is a family, you know, where our boys had spent the night with their boys. But there's another family in the church, and I was thinking about them this week in this series on Stuck. And the family in this church were a pastor before uh, coming here to Lakeland. And this family, they lived on a home on a beautiful lake. And they had a big dock running out the back of their yard. And on that, I remember it. I've, I've seen it before, a sliding board that went out. And kids would love that. You know, their, their kids, uh, friends of their kids. And I can remember looking at this at a time when we were visiting, never realized what would happen later. But on this slide, on this dock, there's a ladder that goes from the top of the slide down into the base of the lake. And their daughter had grown up in that home. So as a little girl who could swim quite well, she would swim underwater and she would swim. I don't think I'd ever attempt it, especially now. But she would swim between the steps on this ladder. She was small enough that she could swim between the steps. And so one day, the family and friends, I don't know if they were doing a cookout, people were swimming. And so like she had done a million times before, she's swimming around and she goes under the water and she's going to swim through the steps. But she does not realize that she's not only older, but she's bigger. And this, and this child actually gets stuck between the steps. And it's like, oh. And, you know, I, I just, when I think about that, it just causes a chill to go down my spine. I can't even imagine, you know, the sense of helplessness of being that stuck. It's like, I'm in here underwater. I don't have long. Fortunately, you know, there are a lot of people out there, and they're like, well, she's not coming up as quickly as she. And one of the family members dove in and, and got her out. And I'm just thinking, you know, that happens. That happens physically that people get stuck in various things. 
but spiritually it happens as well. And we've been talking about it. Once you know you're stuck, then what do you do to get out? And the very first week we were talking about Paul out of Romans chapter 7 where he talks about, you know, this conflict between our two natures. And it brings up the point, one of the steps that we've got to consider if we're stuck is to admit that we're powerless over our desire to do wrong. We just want to. It, it, we don't like it after the fact. But as Paul said in Romans 7, he said, the very things that we know we should not do, those are the things that we find ourselves doing. And the things that we ought to do, we don't do those. And we need to admit, I mean, if we're stuck and we're either there, we're going to be there to admit that I'm powerless over my desire to do wrong. That's what Paul says in Romans 7. The very next week, week two, we went into the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 4, and we looked at this up and down life of King Nebuchadnezzar. And how that he was pride, prideful and arrogant. He thought he was powerful. And, you know, he walked around in his palace uh, in his pompousness and, and just feeling like this is all about me. This is about my glory. This is about my honor. This is about my fame. I've done all this. And, and God just brought him to his knees. He ends up eating grass out in the field with animals. And you, you heard the story a couple of weeks ago. And in that, we learn the second step if we're stuck. The first step is admit that we're powerless over our desire to do wrong. But secondly is to admit that God is all-powerful. There's a, there's a term, omnipotent, that God is omnipotent, that he is all-powerful. There's nothing God cannot do. But what we've got to understand about that fundamentally is not only is God all-powerful, but the good news for us is that God actually wants to help us. So that was step two. And then last week in step three, we went to Luke chapter 19. We looked at this vertically challenged guy by the name of Zacchaeus and his whole story and how that in an amazing kind of way, he goes about to make things right with all of the people that he had wronged, which were basically the entire population of Judea because he was a chief tax collector, and he had ripped them all off. And he just stood up when Jesus is at his house, and he said, today, right now. I mean, he goes verbal, pronounces it. It's like, I want you guys to hold me accountable. You hear me say this, Jesus. Right now, right now, I'm going to cut my net worth in half. I'll give away, you know, half of what I've got to the poor. And everybody that I've wronged, everybody that I've cheated, everybody that I've taken more taxes from them than what was required, I'll give them back what I took, and four times as much. And it's an amazing story of how he chooses to make things right with the people that he has wronged. Now, today we're going to look at another story, and I want to talk through this fourth step. I'll go ahead and give it to you. It's very, very important. And this one, it's last, but it's not last because it's least important. In fact, I would imagine that for the majority of us, this may be the one where we get stuck easiest of all. It's not that the others won't give us problems from time to time, but this one is a, is a big one, and we need to talk it all the way through. Uh, let's talk about this essential fourth step of I must look beyond myself. I must look beyond myself. I cannot live my life self-absorbed, self-focused. I must look beyond myself. Now, I want you to think about it in, in this way. We're going to talk this out a little bit. All of us carry a message. We really do. We have a message that, that Jesus has put in our hearts. We'll talk more in detail about that. And that is a message that is not just for us, but it is a message for everybody. In fact, we have this responsibility, this responsibility under Jesus to take this message that we have been recipients of and to take that same message to other people because it's not all about us and it's not all for us. Now, here's the truth. 
all of us send out a message. We all have a message, and sometimes we, we give this message off. And people pick up on it. You just got to know that they do, even if we're unconscious of it. And, and sometimes we, we exude a, a message that would be something, you know, like this. Life is a competition. I, I mean, competition, you, you know, I'm, I'm competing in every phase, every domain of my life. Life is a competition. One who gets to the end has the most toys. That person wins. Life is all about competition. Sometimes we exude that kind of message. Sometimes we exude a message that my image is my priority. You know, I've got to manage my image. I want to be careful, you know, that everybody thinks of me the way that I want them to think about me uh, and not necessarily as I really am. And we get into this whole image management kind of thing. And so a lot of times the message that we communicate is not our, the message we ought to communicate. It is my image is my priority. Now, sometimes we communicate a message in this regard. We communicate a message that is essentially this. I'm a victim. You know, everybody hates me. Whole world is against me. Work is against me. Family is against me. Friends is against me. Uh, they're, they're against me. I'm a victim and, and all of that. And that's a message sometimes. Here's a message. Uh, sometimes people, and I've seen this, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a Christian counselor, but as a pastor, you interact with a lot of people. And over the years of being a pastor, I've, I've interacted with a lot of people, hundreds and hundreds of people by now. And sometimes I've noticed that the message that some people put off is, and they act out in ways, but they're acting out in ways, not necessarily because that's what they want to do or who they want to be. It's just their way of getting some attention, even if it may be negative in nature, because a person may function out of their own insecurity, and so they act out out of insecurity, and sometimes that's a message that we send. Now, we may carry a message that we don't really want to carry, and we do so with our words, or, or that message becomes clear in how we treat people, or how we spend our time, or how we spend our money, and and are not so invisible emotions. You know, we think that, hey, we can hide our emotions. Nobody's going to know what we're really feeling when many times we reveal them. They're not uh, invisible at all. And a lot of times these messages that we're not even conscious of and how we're communicating them, we're actually doing it quite often. Now, the most important message that you and I need to carry, and not just carry, but give to other people, is a message that God is very, very serious about. And that's why I want to talk to you about it today, because you and I get caught up in the craziness of life to where, if we're not careful, we think that life is just about, you know, what's happening in our day-to-day -day lives. That our life is about our job, or our life is about our family, or our life is just about our home that we live in, or the car that we drive, or the things that we have. And, and really, it's not that those things are, are wrong, family and work, and, you know, where we live, and what we drive, and what we wear. It's not that those things, you know, are, are wrong. It's just like God has us here for a much higher and more noble purpose than that. Our life is about so much. The totality of our life is about so much more than just existing and going and having, it's about taking a message that Jesus has entrusted to us and making sure that we give that message to other people. I want you to look at these verses. This is the last chapter of Matthew. Matthew 28, let's pick up at verse 18. Look at it with me. It says, then Jesus came to them, this is to his followers, and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. He's going to send them out with the message. Go and take the message. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father 
and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, all of you, everybody, 100% of you, read the last portion of this with me, everybody now. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's amazing what Jesus does here. Jesus hands off this unbelievable message to people that, quite honestly, if we were handing off a message, we may have not handed it off to this group of guys at all. It was his disciples. It was his inner circle. But that does not mean that these gentlemen were perfect by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they were so much like you and me. They had their doubts, and they had their fears, and they had their weaknesses. These were men that had their own struggles, and yet Jesus entrusted to imperfect people the most important message that the world could ever know. And you know what? Looking back, they did a pretty good job, to say the least, of taking it to the next generation. And then that has been perpetuated ever since. From Jesus giving it to them just before he goes back to the Father and saying, here's my message. I'm giving it to you. I want you to give it to others. And then they've done it in every generation. And now it has sort of trickled down to our time, our epoch in history, where now we are the carriers of that message with this huge responsibility to make sure that we get the message of Jesus that's come to us and we get it out to other people. That's a huge assignment from God. But it's handed down to us from Jesus, and it cannot stop with our generation. You think about that. Every generation since Jesus initially gave this in Matthew 28, it has just kept going forward, 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 forward. And I'm just telling you, friends, I don't want to be a part of the generation that it would stop with our generation. It's got to keep going forward. Now, I want you to follow me here because what I'm about to say could be somewhat contradictory if you don't hear me clearly. If you and I are saying, which is this fourth step of being stuck, is that we've got to look beyond ourselves. In that regard, when you and I choose to do that, to look beyond ourselves, this may in fact be the very thing that will help us to be unstuck. Can I just tell you this? My, my own, this is, uh, you know, not, a, not professionally done. It's my observation. It's not like data that I have read. It's just my observation that the people that get stuck most often are the people that think of themselves most. Let me just say that again. That the people that get stuck most often are the people that think of themselves most. I want you to look at what Ralph Waldo Emerson says. Neat thing that he says here. Look at it on the screen. He said, it is one of the most beautiful compensations of this life that no man can sincerely try to help another without helping himself. And if you've ever been just stuck in the blues or just sort of in that fog and it's like, you know, you're just discouraged or downcast, it's like, you know, and the fact of the matter is when you look back, maybe you're saying, I was just so focused on myself. But like if you shake yourself and you get out and you do something for somebody else, it just helps you to become unstuck even from the base of your own emotions and how you feel, much less what's going on in your life spiritually. But here's the problem. Often, you and I have a reluctancy to carry this most important message. And why is that? Why is that? I mean, honestly, you know, if, if, if you're telling me that you're doing the very, very best in that and there's no room for improvement, then I would, you know, I would give you the benefit of the doubt or I would work my hardest to give you the benefit of the doubt. But the fact of the matter is, I would imagine for you, and it's also true for me, that we do not carry the message of Jesus with the urgency and the passion and the energy that God intended from the very beginning. 
I don't think that we have necessarily developed a rebellious heart or spirit that causes us to just dig in and protest, taking Jesus' message to other people. It's just that we're hesitant. We're adverse to it. Please hear me on this. It's not just a reality that other people need to desperately hear the message. But the reality is, listen, they not only hear, need to hear the message, but there's something within us. See if this doesn't make sense to you. That there's something about when you and I know that we are the recipients and the carriers of the message of Jesus. If we are not giving it to other people who desperately need to hear about it, not only is their life not going to be changed, but what happens is slowly, in a diminishing fashion, does the message of Jesus lose its aliveness in us. We don't have that passion. I mean, think about when you first became a follower of Jesus and how eager you were to tell everybody about the transformation that Jesus had made in your life. And maybe you thought it through and you could put it into words where you could tell somebody, this is what my life was like before I came to Jesus. This is how I received Jesus into my life. This is how Jesus has changed my life. And you wanted to find every one of your family members, every one of your friends, and tell them the message of Jesus. You had this passion, this energy, the message of Jesus. Jesus was alive in you. I'll never forget one night. I mean, I was just gripped with such conviction and and praying for a family member that was far, far from God. And ordinarily, I would have never done this. I do not make it a habit of calling people in the middle of the night. And how many of you are glad of that? Although I do have your number. And if it ever comes back to me, just knowing I have your number will be helpful. But I had this family member. I called him in the middle of the night, and I just said, you know what? I've got, I know this is not me, and I wasn't getting weird and mystical on him, but I, I just felt such an urgency and a burden that I, I knew that I was to call you. I know it's the middle of the night, and I know that I've awakened you from your sleep, and I'm so sorry about that. But the reality is, here's a message that I believe Jesus wants you to hear and to know. And I mean, if we're not doing that, not only are we robbing the people that need to hear the message, what happens is the message becomes stale and dry, and it loses its aliveness in us. Now, when you and I read and study the Bible, what we're going to know is that, you know, when we're not always carrying the message of Jesus as we should, it's not like we're the first people that this has ever happened to. Actually, when you look at the Bible, you find that it's happened to various ones, people that we look back on, and maybe especially in the case of this first guy, we have a huge amount of respect for you remember Moses. Moses is, is like, he not only has the message of God. Now, he didn't have the message of Jesus. Although Jesus existed at that time, he had not come in what we would call his incarnational life. He had not been born as a babe in Bethlehem. Now, Jesus was just as much, just a caveat, this is a side note, Jesus was just as much alive at creation along with the Father and the Holy Spirit as he was in his birth, but he was not involved in his earthly life and ministry and teachings and such. So Moses did not have the message of Jesus, but he had the message of God. And this is what God says to Moses, I want you to take my message and I want you to deliver it. But this is how Moses responds. Listen, these are his words. Well, what if I take your message and they do not believe me or they do not listen to me? What if I take the message? God, I know that you've told me I need to, but what if I take the message that you want me to take and I deliver the message and they don't hear me, they don't listen, or they don't believe? 
But he doesn't stop there. He's got another reason for his reluctancy. And this one has to do not with them, not that they won't listen, not that they potentially will not believe, but this one has to do with him. And he said, besides God, I'm not very eloquent. I'm not a good speaker. Which, by the way, can I just tell you that that was a, that was a pitiful excuse Later we read this. Actually, we read this about Moses in another place in the Bible far after this time where it says that Moses was a man who was powerful in word and deed. So he's just giving God an excuse. He's saying, you know what? I know that you've given me this assignment. I know that I have a responsibility to take the message you've given to me to them. However, the problem is with them. They won't listen. They won't believe. And furthermore, the problem is also with me. It's not all them, God, because I've got a problem too. I'm not a good communicator. I can't put words together, and I'm not going to be very persuasive. So they've got a problem, and I've got a problem. And it caused him to have an aversion to carrying the message of Jesus to people that God wanted him to carry it to. Now, it doesn't stop with Moses. It actually continues, and many of you have heard about this story. If you uh, possibly grew up in church, you heard about this guy and because a well actually becomes a part of his story. And you heard about that if you went to Sunday school or something like that when you were a kid. But there's this guy by the name of, of Jonah. And I want you to look at these verses up on the screen because now God is going to give a message to Jonah and Jonah's going to have a reluctancy to take the message of God. Look at Jonah. This is chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It said, The Lord gave this message to Joseph, son of Amittai. Get up and go to that great city of what? What's the city? Nineveh. It's part of the Assyrian Empire. And I want you to announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. And God loved these Ninevites, these people that were a part of this Assyrian um, kingdom, empire. But he saw that they were so wicked, so wicked. Their wickedness rose to heaven, and God loves them, and God wants them to repent. And God's going to send Jonah with a message because he doesn't want him to die in their wickedness. God loves Ninevites, but he sees the judgment that is going to come if they don't stop what they're doing. And so he says, Jonah, you go and you tell him. You tell him. And how does Jonah respond? This is Jonah's reaction. I've got the message of God. I know that God wants me to go. But if God is saying that he wants me to go this way to Nineveh, then I'm going to go that way in the opposite direction of Nineveh. And let me tell you why Jonah felt that way. It was because he despised Ninevites. He hated Ninevites. How many of you know that's a, that's, that's a problem if you hate the very people you're supposed to take God's message to? And so he just says, if God's saying that way, I'm going this way, and, and he has this aversion to taking God's message, but it is for an entirely different reason than what Moses had. Remember Moses' response, his excuses? All right, God, I have the message, but I'm not going because they've got a problem. They're not going to listen. They're not going to believe. And furthermore, I've got a problem. I'm not eloquent. I'm not a good communicator. Jonah does not mention either of those things. He never says that, hey, I can't communicate the message. And he never says, I, I don't think if I give them the message that they're going to refuse to listen, and they're certainly not going to leave. In fact, listen, friends, it's very, very important. In fact, he is distraught at the very thought that they're going to do the opposite of that. He is disturbed that when he does take the message of God to the Ninevites, that they are going to listen, and they are going to believe, and they are going to repent, and they are going to turn to God, and that's the last thing that Jonah wants to happen because, again, Jonah can't stand Ninevites. He hates Ninevites. And he has no, no, uh, no intention of delivering the message. But we are not Moses. 
and we are not Jonah. So what is it that keeps us from taking the message of Jesus to other people? And there could be various reasons. I'll mention uh, two rather quickly. I think one of the primary reasons why we're reluctant to take the message of Jesus to others is our own sense of inadequacy. It's like, you know, I, I, I'm, you know I've never been trained in that. I've never had any kind of professional training. And, you know, God can only use like veterans, experienced people who are very comfortable in their skin doing this. And they just do it without even having to think about it. They never get sweaty palms or lump in their throat. It just comes easy and natural to them. And I don't have training, therefore, and it's our feeling of inadequacy. Or we may even say, well, I'm a new Christian, and, you know, golly, how can I tell somebody, you know, the message of Jesus when I'm just trying to figure it out myself? And, you know, I haven't been that far removed from where they're at, and I'm, I'm a new Christian. Certainly, as a new Christian, I don't have any kind of responsibility to take Jesus' message. I mean, really? Not me. Or we may say, well, I don't, uh, I don't really understand my Bible that well. And, you know, if you're going to really tell anybody the message of Jesus, you've got to be like a scholar or a theologian or at least spent, you know, half your life in, you know, seminary or something like that. And I don't really know my Bible that well. In, in fact, friends, I, I can relate to all of these things because I've felt all of those things. I can remember, can I tell you this? If you think you don't know your Bible, can I tell you, and I'm the guy giving talks here every weekend, that when I first became a Christian, I knew I needed to pray. I knew I needed to read the Bible, but nobody taught me how to study the Bible. It's like I just picked it up, and I remember hearing somebody say out there somewhere, you know, don't start in the Old Testament, start in the New Testament. So instead of starting in Genesis 1, I started in Matthew chapter 1. And I'd take time every day, and I'd read it a little bit. And I went from Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, 3, uh, you know, kept going all the way through chapter 28, the verses that we just read, 18 through 20, which are the last verses of chapter 28. And I read that, and I'm like, wow, I've just read a book of the Bible. And then I just, you know, I'm going to continue with my devotion. So the next time I started to read the Bible, I sat down, and I started with Mark chapter 1. And the deeper I got into Mark's gospel, I, I had this, and, and you may laugh at me, and that's okay, but I remember reading and thinking, what's going on here? It seems like I have read this somewhere before. I mean, how do I know this? How do I know this? Because nobody ever took the time to tell me, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're the Gospels, and each of these writers are given their account of different of the same things that happened in the life and teachings and ministry of Jesus. And so I'd read Matthew, and then I'd get to Mark, and then I got to Luke, and I'd like, deja vu, what is going on? It seems like all this stuff, and I didn't realize that I'd already read it, but just from a different person telling the story. And a lot of times we say, well, I, I, I can't really tell the message of Jesus because I'm not sure I understand it myself. Or we say, what if somebody asks me a question and I don't know the answer to that question? You know, then, oh, man, it's all going to blow up. Do you remember what Jesus said? Very last verse, we looked at it, Matthew 28, very last verse, verse uh, 20, when Jesus said, and you keep this in mind, every time you go, you just know, surely I am with you. I'm with you. Every time you go, you just got to know. You're not going on your own. I'm going with you. Now, this is not a trick question, all right? It's really not. And I want to hurry here. It's not a trick question or questions because I'm going to ask you two, all right? Question number one. Everybody ready? 
How many of you are still with me? Wave your hand at me like this. I know it's dark in here. I know maybe you didn't have enough coffee. And so if you see anybody starting to nod, they don't even have to be asleep. If they start to nod, you just smack them really good in Jesus' name. And if I hear smack, I'll just know you're doing the work of God right there where you're seated. All right? How many of you are still with me? Question number one. What do you think? You don't have to call it out loud, but just think about it. What do you think is the greatest sermon in all of the Bible? The greatest sermon in all of the Bible. What would you say? A lot of people would say, and I would not disagree, that the the greatest sermon in all of the Bible probably is the sermon that Jesus gave, a series of teachings that we now refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the greatest sermon not ever given, certainly uh, recorded in the Scripture. All right, so a lot of us would say Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever in the Bible. All right, second question, what is the worst sermon in the Bible? And some of you are saying, you know, Jeff, is it even legal for you to say that? I mean, like a you know, worst sermon in the Bible? But there's one that I have in mind. Like, I think, I think probably the worst sermon of all. And it's right here in the Old Testament book of Jonah. Now, keep this in mind. He has now changed his mind. God's got his attention, and you know that whole story. Uh, And now he is in Nineveh. And you would have thought, because the Ninevites, who are part of this Assyrian empire, they don't know God. They don't know about God. They don't know the uh, teachings of God. They don't know the law of God. They, They don't know the name of God. They don't even know the Ten Commandments. So you would have thought that Jonah would have sat down and just said, God, you're going to have to really, really, really help me here because I've got to craft a great, great sermon to people that don't even know who you are. And I'm going to take your message, and I'm going to tell them. I'm going to warn them. That's why. You love them. I don't care about it myself, but you love them. And so, you know, it's onus on me to deliver them. And I'm going to give you my best effort. And so I'm going to put together like this masterpiece sermon in order to persuade them to repent and come to you. But I want you to look at, look at I think, the worst sermon in all of the Bible. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 4. It says, Jonah entered the city and walked about, uh, walked for about a day. Then he said, and here's his message. This is his message. In 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That's his message. That's it. That is it. That is the introduction. That is the text. That is the application. That is the conclusion. That is the whole ball of wax. That is his whole message. And and can I tell you, I'm a little bit jealous because if that had been my whole message uh, for this morning, that would have saved me hours and hours and hours of my time this past week. It's, It's not a very good message. He just looks at the people, and he's not sad about it. He's not crying about it. He's sort of happy about it. You read the story. You check it out later on your own. You'll see I'm telling you the truth. He's sort of happy about it. In 40 days, none of it will be destroyed. He's like, oh, boy. In fact, he later pulls up a, a lawn chair. I'm sure it's got a Georgia Bulldog logo on it. But, again, I'm just reading into the text a little bit, and he just sat back. No, he didn't. No, a Georgia fan would never do that. He was from one of these other schools that will remain unnamed. And he just sits down and he says, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to get a front row seat. Now, that's it. But what happens? If, if you don't know the outcome as to what occurs, you would be totally blown away. Here it is. The people of Nineveh believe God's message. It says that in verse 5, the A part of that verse. It says he just gives this lousy sermon. Hey, 40 days, Nineveh's going to be destroyed. Ha, ha, ha. I'll get a chair. I'm going to watch it. And it said that the people repent. 
And you know what it tells us? And listen, uh, this is what I want you to get. Please, 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 you've got to get this. You've got to understand this. Oftentimes, people are more receptive to the message that we're unwilling to give. It's like their level of receptivity is heightened over our desire to give the message. In fact, somebody has said this. It's a great statement. It is better to have an inadequate message about a glorious God than a glorious message about an inadequate God. Listen to that. It's better to have an inadequate message about a glorious God than a glorious message about an inadequate God. And it's just a reminder to us, friends, that people are more, more ready to receive. And so we can't just say, well, I'm just a new Christian and I haven't been trained in this or I don't understand my Bible that well or somebody's going to ask me a question. No, it's not about that. And remember, Jesus said, anytime you take my message that you have received from me and you give it to other people, which is what I want you to do, you just got to know I'm going to go with you. No excuses. Don't hold back. No reluctancy. But a lot of times, our reluctancy is born out of our sense of inadequacy. Sometimes it's born out of the second thing is our personal fears. You know, how are people going to react? How are people going to respond? You know, one of the great questions to ask anytime that you have a fear about anything, listen, and this will help you beyond just the topic that we're on today. Anytime you have a great fear, I think a great question to always ask is this question, what is the worst possible thing that can happen? I'm almost embarrassed to tell you this, but when I was 18 years of age, it was like the evil one, you know, uh, he couldn't hammer me in this area because I had my defenses up, and maybe this area because I had my defenses up, but he just found an inroad into my life, which was fear. And I can remember as an 18-year-old, very healthy guy who had played sports his whole life from the time he was four years old till that time, no sickness, no physical abnormalities, no doctor's report saying you've got this or this. But I just, I had this, this insane fear that I was going to die. And it was ruling my life. I mean, it was zapping me of peace and joy. It left me like with emotional paralysis. It's like I'm not even fully functioning because I just have so much fear going on. I wasn't very pleasant to be around, to be quite honest. And then one day it just hit me, and I know it was God because I wasn't smart enough to figure this out on my own. I just stopped and I said, all right, time out, time out, time out. I'm afraid I'm going to die, but I'm in Christ. I knew I'd receive Jesus about two years prior to that. I knew that if I did die, I was going to heaven. And so I answered my own question with God's help. What is the worst thing that can happen to me if I die? And I said, you know, the worst thing is I can go to heaven, and everybody says that's going to be a great thing. And once I understood that, it's like evil one couldn't hold that over my head anymore because I'm like, you know, sort of Paul, nothing like Paul, but like, hey, stay or go, you know, either way, it's a good, good thing. But a lot of times we have fears. It's like, you know, they're going to reject me, or they're going to make fun of me, or it may injure our friendship. And ask yourself, what's the worst thing that can happen? You say, well, hey, you know, and you bring the message of Jesus up in a conversation because they share something that's going on in their life, a personal crisis or a challenge. You say, hey, by the way, you know, I'd love to pray with you. Could I pray with you about that? If you have a fear, just imagine, what is the worst possible thing that can happen? They can just say, no, I'm not comfortable with that. They're not going to burn your house down. What if you say, well, you know, I just sense that I need to share my story, much like I mentioned a moment ago. Man, I just seem that God, God is setting it up. I can take the message of Jesus, what my life was like, you know, how I received Jesus, what my life has been like since. 
And, and I can tell that, and we say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be arrogant about this at all, but I want to humbly tell you my story. And I don't have my act fully together, and I'm not a perfect person, but I want to tell you my story. Would you listen to my story? What's the worst possible thing that could happen? They may say, I don't, I don't really care to hear your story. They're not going to cause you to lose your citizenship. What if you say, you know, I... I I feel that God wants me to invite somebody to come to church with me, but I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't know, and, you know, are they going to be open, receptive to that? And we just say, well, all right, I'm going to just go for broke. Hey, listen, I go to church, and it's in a theater, and I'd really like for you to come, and, and uh, you can sit with me, and I'll be right there with you the whole time. Our church loves guests, and we'd be thrilled to have you. What's the worst thing that can happen? They can just say no. You're not going to lose your life for it. Friends, can I, can I just say something to you and to me? The reality is, anytime you and I would say something like that, we've just got to understand it is so weak when compared to what followers of Jesus have endured throughout the ages because they were willing to take the message of Jesus in a culture that is not as easy as our little culture that we live in. Not that everybody loves God, not that there's not anti-God and anti-Jesus sentiment all around us. But listen, the reality is, anytime you and I speak up with the message of Jesus, it's not going to be like for other believers who have lost their homes and many have lost their jobs and their family and their freedom and even their very lives. I was reading a book not too terribly long ago. And in this book, it describes uh, one, one fellow Christian in India And this brother, while being skinned alive, and you heard me right, skinned alive because of his commitment to Jesus, he looked at his persecutors and said, I thank you for this. Tear off my old garment, for I will soon put on Christ's garment of righteousness. Another believer, a guy by the name of uh, Christopher Love, was headed to his own execution. He wrote a note to his wife saying to her, Today they will sever me from my physical head, but they cannot sever me from my spiritual head, which is Christ." They'll take my head off. They'll sever me from this physical head, but they can never separate me from my spiritual head, which is Jesus. His wife was so moved with her husband's courage that when the executioners let him off, she stood there and she clapped. She applauded for her own husband's courage while he sang a worship song, going to have his head taken off. The worst thing that could happen to us? No, don't want to hear. No, I'm not going to come. No, you can't pray with me. That's about it. So anytime you and I are just like, uh, and I know they're real. I know our sense of inadequacy is real. I know that our, our personal fears that we have about this are real. But again, consider what is the worst possible thing that can happen? All right, let me wrap up this talk by approaching it in a slightly different way, and then we're done. I think one of the ways, one of the ways that we can deliver the message, got to have courage. Got to put our sense of inadequacy aside, our personal fears. Got to shove them to the side. And one of the things that we can do is we can take the message of Jesus in a way by loving and serving others. And I think, you know, when we love and serve other people, it just sets them up to be more receptive. And it causes us to ask ourselves a a very legitimate question. Is there anything about my life? You ask yourself that. Is there anything about your life that causes it to stand apart from the crowd? Is there anything that makes us different? Is there any distinction in our life? Or are we just like everybody else around us, self-absorbed, greedy, uncaring, harsh, indifferent to those, you know, around them? Do we carry the same kind of attitudes? Do we give off the same message? 
that even people who do not know God. I want you to look at this verse right here, up on the screen. This is out of Matthew as well. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 42. Everybody read it with me. Will you read it? You can be sure that whoever gives even a drink of cold water to one of the least of these my followers, because he is my follower, will certainly receive a reward. Everybody cares a message. What is yours? And I think one of the things that sets us up in a good way to take the message of Jesus to others is by being known by our love, by having a servant's heart. So I'm talking about in this fourth step, it's so important to know that one of the things that will help us to get unstuck is when we keep just focusing on ourselves all the time. And we say, you know what I'm going to do? It's not all about me. I'm going to serve. I'm going to love. I'm going to help others. I really like the message sent by this high school student athlete. Some of you may be familiar with it, but take a look at it real quickly, and then we're going to come back and wrap up. Coach Peter Morales of the Coronado High School Thunderbirds in El Paso, Texas, makes no qualms about it. He has a favorite on this team. Mitchell, I need you. I need you to help me out with my coaching tits, Mitchell. Team manager Mitchell Marcus has a developmental disability. One, two, three, four. And he far surpasses everyone here when it comes to love of the game. He's just an amazing person that our basketball team loves being around. Yay! Mitchell's mom, Amy, says he's always been that way. Mitchell always had a basketball. That was always what he wanted for his birthday. And because basketball is that important to him, on the last game of the regular season, the coach told Mitchell to suit up. What was it like to put on the uniform? I was very happy. I bet you were. Just wearing a jersey was enough for Mitchell. But what he didn't know, what no one knew at the time, was that the coach planned to play him. At the end, no matter what the score. You were prepared to lose that game? For his moment, yes. For his moment in time, yes. And so, with a minute and a half left, Coronado leading, but only by 10, Coach Morales put in his manager. And just started hearing Mitchell, Mitchell. But here's where the fairy tale fell apart. Although his teammates did everything they could to get Mitchell a basket, each time they passed him the ball, he either missed the shot or, like on their last possession, booted it out of bounds, turning the ball over to the other team with just seconds left. He wasn't going to be able to score. But I was hoping that he was happy that he was just put in the game. Could you have ever imagined what happened next? No, I did. I could not. Not at all. What happened next happened on the inbound. The guy with the ball there is a senior at Franklin High School. Number 22, Jonathan Montanez. Uh, I just, I was raised to treat others how you want to be treated. Just thought Mitchell deserved his chance, deserved his opportunity. I think I'll cry about it for the rest of my life. What Jonathan did was yell out Mitchell's name, then threw the ball right to it, right there. One of the most memorable turnovers of all time. It wasn't the game-winning shot. When the buzzer sounded, Coronado had 15 more points than Franklin. But Jonathan's assist and Mitchell's basket did change the outcome decidedly play any game with this much sportsmanship. Both teams win. Coach Pete. Pretty cool, huh? I read this not long ago. Ten rules for getting out of the blues. Have you ever been in the blues? 
Here's the 10 rules. You ready for them? Go out and do something for someone else and repeat it nine times. Just serve. Just love. Just go. You want to get unstuck? There's something wonderful that happens when you and I just say, you know what, I'm going to love others, I'm going to help others. And we never intended for it to be about us, but the thing that it does is this fourth step we've been talking about is we actually find it ourselves. We become unstuck. I want you to take a look. In fact, go ahead and stand with me because we're out of time. I want you to take a look at something that Francis Chan said in a book that I read some time ago. He said, we are most alive when we're loving and actively giving of ourselves because we were made to do these very things. Would you bow with me for prayer? God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've looked at. God, we don't want to be stuck. But so often we're stuck because we're just consumed with us. And help us to look beyond ourselves and to say we are going to love and we're going to serve and we're going to help. And even though at times we feel inadequate and although at times we have our fears, we will take your message and we will share that message with others so that they too can know what a great God you are. Empower us as a church. Empower us individually to do that very thing. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you, everybody. God bless.